1: So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome to Cool Canadian History. I'm your host, David Boris. The second half of the 19th century was an incredible period of economic growth in Canada. Once Confederation was completed, investor confidence in this new national project continued to grow. Money from Great Britain and the United States helped drive the continuing industrialization of the country. At the same time, Business opportunities flourished in the new nation, and many new arrivals took advantage of these opportunities. One of them was John Labatt. By the late 1860s, he had created one of Canada's most successful breweries. However, his son, John Labatt Jr., would attempt a bold maneuver to expand Labatt's beer south of the border. For many Canadian businessmen and entrepreneurs, the American economy was full of opportunity, but posed significant challenges. The size of the American economy, the size of its corporate entities, the size of the market competition all dwarfed what was occurring in Canada at the same time. John Labatt Jr.'s attempt to open operations in the United States became a warning sign for many Canadians a cautionary tale of the challenges of heading south during a dynamic period of free market capitalism on the entire north american continent this is season six episode four labat's blown from the windy city john labat's beer expansion into the united states The book recommendation today is by Matthew Bellamy. It is his recently published book, Brewed in the North, A History of Labatt's, published by McGill Queen's Press. With this, Bellamy positions himself as arguably Canada's foremost expert on the history of brewing in Canada, and in particular, one of the most famous breweries of them all. Okay, so let's give a little bit of a history of Labatt breweries. John Kinder Labatt was born in Mount Mellick, Ireland in 1803. His descendants were exiled French Huguenots who, over the years, had converted to Anglicanism in a predominantly Catholic country. John's aspirations were always to escape his small village in Ireland, and in 1830 he did just that, moving to the bustling metropolis of London, England, to attempt to find a career. While having some professional success, the fact that he was Irish worked against him, and he seemed to run into a series of unofficial roadblocks in his journey up the corporate ladder. He did, however, meet a fine young woman named Eliza Kell, and they were eventually married. In 1834, fed up with what seemed like his inability to improve his prospects in London, Labatt and his wife journeyed to Upper Canada, modern-day Ontario, where they spent the last of their money on a land purchase near modern-day London, Ontario. He spent the next decade working on his farm, but once again felt he was not reaching his full professional potential. And fed up with crops and livestock, he sold everything and returned to England. While back in England, however, he received the type of opportunity that he had always been waiting for, His friend back in Upper Canada, Samuel Eccles, had purchased a brewery. Labatt felt that this was his chance to really make something of his life. And in 1847, he returned to Upper Canada to join his friend in the brewing business. Labatt and Eccles thrived, utilizing the water from the Thames River, the Canadian Thames, not the British one, and harvesting the rich agricultural resources of the region, the brewery produced fine Anglo-Canadian ales and stouts. By the 1850s, Eccles sought other business ventures, and Labatt bought his friend out. Labatt's brewery was officially born. The brewery continued to thrive, mostly because Labatt was aware of the potential of the new industrial age, especially railways. He was one of the first to utilize the growing railway network of the Canadas to ship his products to all corners of the colony and beyond. Labatt beer was being drunk in taverns from London to Montreal and everywhere in between. When in 1866 John K. Labatt died of a heart attack, the brewery went to his third eldest son, John Labatt, Jr. Now, Jr. inherited a Labatt's brewery that was part of a broader shift in the brewery industry in Canada. Because of the rapid expansion of the railway networks and the developments in both technology and mechanization, Labatt's was part of the rise of the large industrial breweries, slowly pushing out smaller, locally-oriented ones. Effectively, large brewers like Labatt's and their rival friend, depending on the decade, Carling, produced far more than could be consumed locally. Thus, they not only flooded local markets with their beer, but shipped it abroad. Just to give you a sense, Labatt produced about half a million dollars worth of beer in 1891. Yet, beer drinkers in London consumed about $55,000 worth. Hence why Labatt's and Carling became part of what was known as the Big 14, that is, 14 breweries that came to dominate Ontario beer making in the post-Confederation years by pushing their product throughout central Canada. This was not just an Ontario phenomenon, mind you. Molson and Moosehead were other breweries considered part of this emerging large-scale brewery industry. Yet the brewery market was a vicious place. Price cutting was a constant tactic used by brewers to undersell their rivals, and at different times throughout the 19th century, threatened to seriously hurt profits amongst the Big 14. Carling and Labatz enjoyed a healthy professional relationship, and thus came together to fix prices in order to provide a cartel-like template to lead the industry away from this aggressive, competitive price-cutting. In fact, for a brief, glorious moment, it seemed like Labatt and Carling had indeed rallied the Ontario brewers into a price-setting cartel. But it was not to be. Within months of any sort of agreements, price-cutting once again erupted amongst the brewers, Price wars reached a fever pitch by the late 1880s and early 1890s, and by 1891, Labatt's profits began to decline. Labatt continued to produce as much beer as he had in the mid-1880s, but the price wars had gouged his profit margin. At this point, frustrated with the Canadian beer-drinking industry, Labatt began to look for alternative markets. And where else would a Canadian go but south? The U.S. beer market was simply massive. It dwarfed the Canadian beer market, because, of course, the U.S. had a population 13 times the size of Canada. But that wasn't the only reason. Americans consumed far more beer, roughly four times as much beer per capita, something like 15 gallons of beer a year, For every man, woman, and child in Canada, the number was closer to three and a half gallons of beer per year. In all fairness to John Jr., Labatt had some experience with the American brewing industry as he had spent some years apprenticing for a Virginia brewer back in the 1850s and 60s. For Labatt, the ideal location, though, for his move south was Chicago, Chicago. It had a large population, about one-fifth the entire size of Canada. Its beer consumption was third in the entire country, and it was ideally situated as a railway nexus. Beer from Chicago could reach almost any city in the northern United States. Furthermore, Chicago was linked to London, Ontario by railway. This meant that Labatt could brew in London, ship to Chicago where his beer would be bottled, then sold in Chicago or shipped further abroad to other American cities. As well, with the introduction of refrigeration in the 1870s, Beer could travel long distances, for instance, 650 kilometers from London to Chicago, in rail cars without spoiling. Despite the freight costs and the fact that his beer would be taxed crossing the border, he figured he could still make a profit. His plan was this. He was going to sell his ale for a price slightly higher than the average American ale. He was going to promote it as a fine ale, much like popular British imports, an ale that both men and women could enjoy, steeped in the brewing traditions of England. While this plan looked great on paper, the reality was going to be much different. Many different variables would make themselves apparent during the 1890s to eventually force Labatt out of Chicago. But before we get to that, folks, I would like to take a second to let you know that we rely exclusively on your donations. If you go to our Facebook page or our website, you will see links to PayPal or Patreon. Both of these links provide safe and secure ways to donate to the podcast. PayPal gives you the option to donate one time, while Patreon allows you to set up regular preset donations. So, for instance, if you want to donate 5 bucks for every episode we publish, well, Patreon allows you to set that up really easily. We survive exclusively on these donations, and every dollar donated is extremely helpful in allowing us to continue to bring you this history program. As well, on our Facebook page, on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, you can leave us a rating and a comment. We love to hear from you. And it really helps us to know how we're doing by the ratings you leave. So please don't be shy. And thank you to everyone who has donated. We could not keep doing this without you. Now back to our regularly scheduled program. So what were these variables that ultimately ended Labatt's move south? Well, first of all, the U.S. brewing industry had changed dramatically since Labatt was last in Virginia. It had become even more popular as widespread immigration had seen dramatic increases in population, especially in urban areas. Now, many of these immigrants came from beer-drinking nations, Britain, Ireland, Germany, etc. The United States, especially the North, had continued to industrialize rapidly, facilitating a growing working-class culture, rising incomes, and greater methods of beer production. By the 1890s, beer was everywhere. Many people could afford it, and it had become part of the daily culture of American life. Yet, like in Canada, the U.S. industry was becoming dominated by large industrial breweries who extended their reach throughout the country. Pabst, Miller, Anheuser-Busch were just a few of these major brewers to emerge during this golden age of American beer consumption. In 1893, Pabst was the first American brewery to sell more than a million barrels of beer in one year. That same year, for instance, Labatt's produced 22,000 barrels. This all meant that by the time Labatt arrived in Chicago, he was up against large corporate breweries that had an extremely strong presence in the Windy City. In fact, by the 1890s, Chicago was one of the most competitive beer markets in all of the United States. Not only did the major breweries have their share of the Chicago market, but 53 local breweries operated in the city as well. While population and distance and transportation all factored into Labatt's plan to move into Chicago, he was entering an arena with very little space for any newcomer.
0: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row?
1: Just like in Ontario, Labatt also ran into price cutting. By the early 1890s, investors from England had bought up a number of breweries and sought to drive out competitors within the U.S. market. In Chicago, this meant price cutting, forcing smaller breweries to either sell their operations to the foreign investors or close up shop for good. For Labatt, The price cutting simply meant that he could not compete. His overhead from importing into Chicago left him with very little margin for profits. Once the prices in Chicago began to drop, what little profit Labatt was making eroded rapidly. The problem wasn't just with prices, though. It was also with the practice of what they called tied houses. Effectively, Brewers purchasing and operating saloons to ensure their beer was sold to customers. Schlitz Beer, for instance, owned 57 saloons in Chicago by the early 1890s. Some of the saloons could seat up to 1,000 people. Labatt couldn't compete with the amount of money needed to invest in this Tide House's strategy. He relied on agents to promote his beer in the various independent saloons and taverns in the city, but his agents proved not up to the task. One of them, in particular, seemed to drink more of the product than he sold. One of the final nails in the coffin of Labatt's expansionist dreams was the Lager Revolution. In the latter couple decades of the 19th century, a number of American brewers began experimenting with a new method of making beer, a beer that looked bubbly and golden, and was meant to be served cold, unlike traditional warm ales. These new lagers proved to be very popular, and more and more beer drinkers began to switch from the dark, cloudy, warm ale to the cold, refreshing lager especially in the hot Chicago summer months. Labatt, however, was a purist, to a fault, and he refused to entertain the notion of a Labatt's logger that would, of course, come in time. With all of these factors combined, John Labatt's Chicago experiment came to an end. Having arrived in the Windy City in the early 1890s, he had retreated, by 1897. Returning to Canada, Labatt's beer continued to be a popular major brewer throughout Ontario and Quebec, eventually expanding to the rest of the country. By the post-war period that is after the Second World War, Labatt's had become one of the big three national brewers. Decades later, long after John Labatt Jr. had passed away, Labatt's would finally find a foothold in the United States with their Labatt Blue brand. But John Labatt's experiment in Chicago speaks to a dynamic period of growth in the beer market where industrial innovation and technological developments led to an increase in the consumption of affordable beer and the rise of major corporate breweries in both Canada and the U.S. Major breweries who fundamentally changed the very nature of alcohol consumption on the continent and whose names still adorn the cans and bottles opened up by millions of North Americans every single day. Cheers. I want to thank you all for listening today. A reminder, you can find us on Facebook, you can find us on Instagram, and you can find us at our homepage, coolcanadianhistory.com. And you can find me on Twitter, at Doc Boris, that's at V O C B O R Y S. Thank you for tuning in and stay cool.